0: Okay, thank you. Are you ready? Yeah. We are tasting the first Ohio tasting of cultivated, cultivated meatball. It does tastes like chicken. We're supposed to say it together, ready? One, two, three, tastes taste like, like chicken. chicken.
1: <laughs> Welcome to Ohio SCI, where we explore new science and technology being done in Ohio. We talk to the researchers on the cutting edge of biotech, energy, ag tech, and more, and let them explain what they're finding, how it works, and where all of these discoveries are taking us in the future. Here are your hosts, Cynthia Ben Finley and Michelle Gatchell.
0: Hey, it's Cynthia Ben Finley here. For our podcast this week, we decided to dive into what I guess you'd call a food and sustainability science topic, lab-grown or cultivated meats. And boy, is this technology making leaps and bounds over the past couple years. I think one of the coolest things we've gotten to do for the podcast so far was actually to go to the first tasting of a lab-produced meat ever in the state of Ohio. That is what you heard at the top of the cast there. It was a chicken meatball, and it was grown- by a company based here in the columbus area that makes a component of lab-grown or cultured meat called matrix food technologies it's a hot topic right now especially because last fall one cultivated meat company became the first in the u.s to be viewed as safe for human consumption by the food and drug administration is the burger of the future here let's listen
1: welcome to ohio sci we have a fantastic guest with us today and you know, Cynthia, I am so excited. We're going to be talking about what it takes to make cultured meats. And the company is called Matrix Food Technologies. And joining us is Taryn Wolf, who is the CEO. Taryn, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on.
2: I'm so excited to be here with you all. Hi, Taryn. I have been so fascinated with this topic since we heard about it, I don't know, several years ago, you guys first got. Started? Can you tell us a little bit about that, like what you guys do, how you got started, and what this whole industry is about? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll just give you the quick
3: backstory on Matrix. Matrix was founded uh, in a partnership between uh, Nanofiber Solutions and Eco Startup Nursery, both based in uh, and around Columbus. And nanofibers works on um, really anything that has to do with nanofibers, right? So this core technology called electrospinning, but mostly their companies and products that they've developed are in the medical devices space. So around 2017, 2018, when cultivated meat started actually coming onto the market, there were a lot more cultivated meat companies. Our current CTO, Jed Johnson, um, who's also one of the co-founders of Nanofiber Solutions, realized that, hey, we have a technology here that is applicable to the cell cultured meat industry, but it actually should be probably a lot easier rather than working in regenerative medicine or working in um, anything that has to do with tissue engineering, because rather than having to interact with the host, this is uh, just going straight into a bioreactor with some cells and then you harvest it and then you eat it, right? But from that point, the company understood from the very beginning that there had to be some really different characteristics about our products that weren't characteristics that the tissue engineering space were looking for. And A, that's edibility. So it had to be food safe, something that could be included as part of the final food product. So not just for cell culture, but actually to be able to give a final food product some kind of structure, texture, or even include uh, any any other features like potentially adding uh, other nutritional content or any kind of flavors to to that final product through a microcarrier scaffold as a cell culture food ingredient also the products had to be completely animal component free so the cultivated meat industry is really focused on removing animals from the entire meat supply chain so Ideally, in cultivated meat production, the only animal-derived product would be the original cell lines. So that original cell biopsy, which can come from an animal, so where you would just biopsy some muscle muscle tissue, an animal does not have to die for this in this process. And then you would take those cell lines and then just continue to proliferate those cells and then bank those cells, or sorry, replicate those cells and then and bank those cells in perpetuity. And those would be your cell lines for the product that you're making. So really important that there were no gelatins, that there were no animal-derived proteins in these products, which are actually pretty common in other microcarriers and scaffolds, even across the medical devices industry.
2: So you work primarily with the muscle cells of the animal for which you want to grow the meat?
3: Correct, correct. So what are the microcarriers and scaffolding made of? Yeah, sure. So um, I guess you know, as Matrix started moving forward, I kind of told you guys that you know I, I had mentioned that microcarriers and scaffolds and that are currently on the market. Sometimes they're made with glass, they're made with plastic, um, they're made with gelatins or other materials that either aren't food safe or they're not animal component free. So Matrix put in all the work from the very beginning into the R and D of making sure that we could manufacture not only make but also manufacture at scale microcarriers and scaffolds that were made of plant-based proteins. So all of our products, again, completely animal component free, all edible. We only have one product that is not edible, but it is food contact safe. We keep that product in our portfolio for the cultivated milk companies because our that product in for cultivated milk wouldn't become part of a final food product. It's just used in the production process. So our products are made from all kinds of different plant-based proteins. We use a lot of Zane. So Zane is to corn, but gluten. Is to wheat. We use pea proteins. We use some alginate bases. And then we have a couple other plant based proteins that we're experimenting with to make sure that all of our customers have options for both microcarriers and scaffolds for both allergen, non allergens. And, you know, depending on their different recipes or preferences, there we're looking to make a really robust portfolio of plant based proteins for the cultivated meat industry. So Pretty simple process, actually. So you um, create these solutions out of these plant-based proteins. Those are fed into an electrospinning machine. So what happens there? Um, so to create a scaffold, for an example, which is kind of a fibrous mat, which cells would be seated onto, you take these plant-based solutions, you would put them into a syringe or into multiple syringes. And with an electrical charge, those are pushed through that syringe. And then those fibers dry while they're in the air. And then they're collected onto a spinning drum. So as that drum spins around, it starts to collect those fibers. And then those fibers are what create that mat. And depending on some of the different parameters that we can change on that electrospinning machine, we can make sure those fibers are aligned. So that alignment would get you something like chicken muscle, for example. So cells would align along those uh, very straight fibers to create those kind of long, straight, very organized fibers of like uh, a chicken think like chicken breast right or for example if you wanted something that looked a little bit more like let's say like a certain cut of beef or like a pork medallion, you would maybe have those fibers be a little more randomly aligned. And so the cells would organize along these randomly aligned fibers in a different way to signal those cells to differentiate on that cell in a way that's not into aligned fibers, but that would maybe turn out to look like marbling, for example, like again, like wagyu beef or like pork, for example. So lots of interesting things we can do with the electrospinning
2: machinery. That's very cool. How, so you can, so you're, you're growing muscle cells. Or are you growing like nerve cells in there too? Are you growing fat cells in there too? Like, how does this all end up? Yeah. So there are, um, a lot
3: of different things. So it, then in the early stages of that cell growth, they'll start to differentiate into different types of cells. And what our products do is actually like, they support that signaling alongside the other growth factors that are in this process, right? So in the process of making cultivated meat, you'll have your cell lines, these four kind of core core technologies, these four enabling technologies to actually scale the industry and make the industry possible. So one is the cells. The other is growth media. You have scaffolds and then you have bioreactors. And so the scaffolds can actually support when cells attach onto that scaffold and start to differentiate cells turning into different types of cells. But we see people doing a lot of different things, either working with one cell type or starting. Starting with more matured cells that have already start to, started to differentiate on uh, microcarriers, for example. And then they'll be seated onto a scaffold in different ways. And then uh, from there you'll see fat cells start to differentiate, and then you'll see these muscle tissue cells start to differentiate alongside each other, but growing on a scaffold to fuse together and then create these whole cuts of meat. Which is also an interesting thing about the microcarriers. So we originally started out making scaffolds, which is you know really kind of the core capable, was kind of one of the core capabilities of our team, but we quickly realized that the cultivated not All the cultivated meat companies out there in the cultivated meat industry were quite ready to use scaffolds at scale. And that probably a lot of the early stage products that would be on the market would be things that were made with just a lot of cell mass or biomass. So think like sausages and hot dogs and burgers and things that we would consider like already processed meats, right? So rather than growing a whole piece of meat and then grinding it up into hamburger, you can actually make that a much more efficient process by just using microcarriers. So for example, the microcarriers are a lot smaller. Uh, some are maybe like the size of a grain of sand. You have some that are a little bit bigger, but the function of those microcarriers is to make lots and lots of cell mass. So think about having a bioreactor, you would dump in these microcarriers, cells attached to those. And then once cells attach to those, they will start to grow. They'll start to beef up a little bit. And then if you dump in more microcarriers, you don't need to add more cells. These cells would just move to those other microcarriers. So so rather than just having this like mass of cells, you have both cells and the edible micro carrier, which actually contributes to that structure of and that kind of cell, that total mass for that final product, which we found a lot of customers really like, especially in these early stages, because this is actually a creating kind of more mass to create a product, but is replacing leaders, maybe some of those like bulking agents or fillers that they would have to add into their product in addition to the cell mass that they're creating. So these are great for either like hybrid products or these like chicken nugget, hamburger, sausage, hot dog type products that are, I guess what we would call unstructured or processed meats.
1: So if you use the micro carriers, do Can you just grow the meat totally only on microcarriers or eventually are those cells going to be placed in a scaffold too?
3: Yeah, so um, it really depends on what product the customer is making. Okay. So we have customers who use just microcarriers and they are making again those kind of unstructured yeah. products. Yeah. Um, because they're not cells, because there's not enough surface area on a microcarrier, because they're so small, they're never going to differentiate into like a whole piece of meat, right? right. So they'll they're not going to differentiate or mature too much on the microcarrier because of the lack of surface area, but they it will create a lot more cell mass a lot more quickly than having just cells in suspension. So, we have some customers that just harvest that cell mass and then they'll take that cell mass and then they'll make their food product with the cell mass. We have others who use microcarriers and then they grow their cells on the microcarriers, then seed them onto a scaffold. And from there, they have these uh, cells that have been in kind of this accelerated phase of growth, right? So, then once they get onto the scaffold, They'll see them there, and then they start to mature and differentiate into muscle tissue once they're on a the scaffold. We also have some customers that just see their cells straight onto a scaffold, but not too many that are using just scaffolds today.
2: So these microcarrier things, do they? What are they made of, and what like can you? I don't know. Do they maybe add to the taste you were talking about? They would replace both bulk, bulking agents. Like, can you do? Flavored micro carriers or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
3: yeah. (laughs) No, to be honest, uh, we often have these like innovation sessions here where we talk about this, like what would be the flavor? Um, So it's kind of funny. We have like all these really technical uh, like lab we have this really technical lab equipment and ingredients and other solutions and things that we're working on. And then we have like a chicken flavor, right? Like (laughs) something that you could buy off the shelf at Kroger because we do need to experiment with these things. What we're making, they're not just for cell culture, right? So these aren't just to make more tissue. This is also a food ingredient. So it has to actually add to that final food product. So one of the things we think about a lot is not just how do we make sure that they, these have great cell culture performance, performance, but how can they also contribute to a final food product? So we're always experimenting with like shapes and size and different things that we can do with these products and one of the things that we actually can do with some of the plant-based proteins is encapsulate liquids. So this was a kind of funny experiment. We originally started working with this technology so that we could encapsulate growth factors into the electrospun scaffolds or any of the electrospun products, and those would be the, that would be a time-released uh, growth factor. So that you know you wouldn't have to use the growth factors in terms of just dumping it into the bioreactor; it would probably already be included in the scaffold most customers were, are not ready for that particular technology. So we just kind of had this in our back pocket, but said, hey, we could definitely include some kind of flavor. If you can encapsulate liquid, you can really encapsulate anything, right? Yeah. Flavor, um, nutrient content. So there's a lot of different things that you can do with the encapsulation of liquids within within inside of these plant-based proteins. So That was a pretty interesting development at Matrix, but again, there wasn't really demand or there hasn't been demand for that particular development so far. But because of that technology that we had developed, we were working with a company in the plant-based space that wanted to use our product as a texturizer. So they weren't doing any cell culture. They just said, you know, we want to try to use your product to give better texture and structure to some of our plant-based products. Can you send us some products that we can start to experiment with this. And then we said, Hey, yeah, it might be interesting to, you know, use this encapsulation technology that we have to see if this can add to solve any of the issues that you have with your products. So rather than encapsulating growth factors, we ended up encapsulating oils. So oils, same thing, can also hold flavored nutrient content and it worked out great. So we actually ended up developing a product line for plant-based products that are not for cell culture, but that are meant to give better flavor profile to plant-based foods. So it's great. We're developing products now for the entire alternative protein industry, both for the plant-based side and the cultivated meat side, but everything that happens on the plant-based side really only enhances our capacity to deliver a better cell culture food ingredient to cultivated meat companies. So lots of really exciting things that we can do. So not only, for example, is it just, you know, can we encapsulate flavor? We can, we're experimenting with a lot of different plant-based proteins, but for example, with electro spraying. You can do a lot of really interesting things like molds for example so today we're thinking you know we're having our our cell culture is you know either probably early stage products are going to be like these kind of processed meats or probably not full muscle cuts, but in the future, we could probably make scaffolds specifically for shrimp or specifically for a lobster tail, right? (laughs) Um, So something like really big and complex, like we could probably make a product um, with the technology that we have that will actually be able to provide like that structure so that cells will grow around this particular extracellular matrix that we make to be able to form these really unique shapes of of muscle tissue
1: okay so going into my sci-fi conspiracy theory mind Mm -hmm. you know explain a bioreactor like are we cloning these cells are they exact replicas like cloning is where i went with my sci-fi mind like is that what's happening here or what is the bioreactor to this process
3: yeah so if you think about it in think about you know these four core technologies in the cultivated meat industry. So you have a bioreactor, your cell lines, the scaffold, and then the growth media, right? So I, let's if you think about it backwards, right? Let's say like you have the first thing and that's the bioreactor and that's kind of representative like so that that whole animal's body, right? Where these mm-hmm. cells are going to grow. You have these cell lines and cells will always replicate, right? So cells will always replicate themselves. Um, So it's not a cloning process. The cells, once they're in the bioreactor, they will start to replicate and replicate. But for them to actually grow into differentiated muscle tissue, they need something to hang on to, right? So that's where microcarriers and scaffolds come in. Again, microcarrier is pretty small, so they don't have a lot of surface area to start to differentiate onto, but once they can actually latch onto that scaffold, so in your body, or let's say my example of the animal's body, we have bioreactor, which is the whole body, and then the scaffold would be the bones, the skin, muscle fibers, cartilage, where these cells are attaching to it, and then they're starting to develop into these longer muscle fibers. They're gonna to start to develop into different, like different types of cells and uh, start to form muscle tissue. Now, how do you get muscle tissue to grow? Same thing of like, you know, you eat, you do exercise, your muscles grow. Same thing with these cells, right? Like you have to feed these cells and then they start to grow, which is where the growth media come in. So growth media is pretty, you know, uh, everybody has their own own formulas for all their, for their different cell lines, but the cells that you just need to feed them, they're living organisms. So to get them to grow, not only do they need something to hang on to in this safe place, which is that bioreactor. (laughs) They also need to be fed so that they can start to actually differentiate into muscle tissue and then uh, grow into much larger complex tissue.
2: So I heard you mention before the fact that the cells don't actually grow, they actually function. Like if you just put a bunch of cells into a dish, you'll get muscle cells that grow, but they don't, something to the effect of they don't grow into active muscle cells that don't metabolize, don't produce the amino acids that are the, really the um, nutritional bits. Of of meat is it, can you talk a little bit more about that? The, and do these things like do they actually like twitch and move when they're in the bioreactor? Like. What are we talking about when you're talking about a functional muscle cell? Yeah, no,
3: I'm going to have to share some links with you guys so that you can actually see some images of this so you can kind of like get an idea of what happens to muscle cells once they get onto a scaffold, because it's really interesting. And in a lot of the pictures that I've shown you guys, you see a lot of cells, you know, with the calcium staining on them. So they're like bright green and they look really cool, but it doesn't really show exactly what each one of these cells are doing. So the cells will, cells will replicate without having a microcarrier or a scaffold. There are this there are a lot of different factors that can influence this and I am not a, a cell biologist so I should probably be careful how far I go into this. But cells can grow and they can be replicated in suspension without a microcarrier or a scaffold. So they'll continue to grow. It is very difficult to those cells will require chemical signaling To differentiate, and they also will not differentiate if they're not attached to a substrate or something like a scaffold at some point. And also those cells, because they don't have something to hang on to, they're not actually going to differentiate or contain some of those fibrous proteins that you'll get on developed muscle tissue, Um, like you would see, for example, on conventional meat. So, for example, when you think about these long fibers on a scaffold, if you think of a cell, when a cell it would hit that scaffold, they might start to stretch out and then they're going to turn into like what are called myotubes. So these are turning into these longer muscle fibers that you would see in muscle tissue that would be different from other types of cells, right? So I guess maybe when you think of a cell, you would think of it as like starting out as being like maybe round or but once these muscle tissues start to differentiate, they'll actually start to elongate once they attach to those scaffolds to develop more complex muscle tissue into longer fibers.
1: So this process in general, I'm curious, you know, like dogs, I think take 64 days to develop a dog and humans, you know, we talk about, you know, nine to 10 months and how long does a process take to get enough cells to grow, to make meat? Like that's, you can use?
3: Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it definitely, it definitely varies. So for example, the process of getting the cells to grow on a microcarrier or scaffold are not, it doesn't take very long. We're talking a matter of days, right? Probably the the thing that takes the most time is the cell banking piece. So from a very teeny tiny biopsy, um, you can have an infinite number of cells. But that's probably one of the challenges in this industry is, you know, creating these cell banks so that you do have enough cells to actually produce lots and lots of meat. So just to give you guys kind of an idea of how long that could take, we started with a really tiny amount of cells. We have a wet lab, but we don't have a large capacity to keep lots and lots of cells. So it took about two months and a couple of really overstuffed incubators to make enough cells to feed 40 people. So the process, most of the process was given just to growing those cells and replicating enough cells so that we could actually then start to grow them on the microcarriers, which only took a matter of days. But really kind of the part that consumes most time is just replicating enough cells so that you have enough to even Start the process. This, however, though, I think at scale, most cultivated meat companies have figured out, you know, they have their cell banks. And I think that, you know, in terms of scale, this is probably one of the earliest and most, uh, this has been done a lot right this is this is something that's like pretty common across like you know all medicine and and tissue engineering and gene therapy etc so there's a lot of technology around you know cell banking so I think most companies have that part pretty figured out and as those cells replicate then they would just continue to you know save cells continue to keep more if they have like their core cell bank and then they can continue to replicate based off of that core. So so is
2: this this whole process of feeding them onto the scaffolding and letting them take up and grow and and growing within days depending on what you want it to do is this like more efficient than growing a whole cow the energy input wise i'm wise, material input wise
3: yeah absolutely absolutely so I think, you know, there are a couple of things. Well, I first should start by saying that I'm I'm definitely I, I don't want to say I'm against animal agriculture, but there are a lot of issues with animal agriculture. I think, you know, one of the biggest things is that animal agriculture today is one of the most inefficient ways to get protein. To a growing population. And if you look at animal agriculture, what it consumes in terms of space, in terms of calories that could be fed to someone else, either as like a plant-based food or as a grain or in some other form, right? It's probably one of the it no, it is the most inefficient way to produce protein for, for humans today. Large-scale animal agriculture also has a lot of negative impacts, both environmental and social human health. So you're looking at not only really high GHG emissions, really high contributions. I think you know in 2020 it was estimated to be 14%, but I just read a report and with some recent data that's being compiled for from the international panel on international panel on climate change. There's one more C there. Um, And I should know this. I have a degree in international environmental policy, but they're saying that it could be up to actually 20%. So 20% of global greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture is a pretty, that's a pretty significant amount. And that's just coming from animal protein production from animal agriculture. So in terms of looking at these negative externalities that come from producing animal protein, there are a lot. And that itself is inefficient, right, is having all of these negative externalities just to produce protein. On the other side, in terms of land use, in terms of infrastructure, there are a lot better ways, again, that we could be producing other proteins that could feed humans with that space that would be much more efficient than just, you know, packing cows or pigs or chickens onto it. In terms of the production side and energy wise, there are a lot of estimates that are based on if we uh, if we replaced animal agriculture 100% with cultivated meat, for example, beef, and we used all renewable energy to replace beef production, it would be somewhere around a 92% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from beef. It's in the 30s, I think think it's like 36% for pork, and it's like 18% for chicken. So really big reductions in terms of switching to cultivated meat from, from animal agriculture. Also, in terms of efficiencies, there are a lot less inputs. So again, massive inputs into creating meat from animals. So just think about it like this. Some kind of simple uh, examples are for cattle to make beef, you the ratio of calories put in uh, to making beef on a cow or getting muscle tissue from a cow grown on a cow to what comes out of it. So the input into the animal, the animal eats it, makes the muscle tissue inside its body. And then the output of that is one to 40. So that's like us making like 40 steaks and then throwing away 39 of them. Like that's kind of the... Yeah, uh, that's similar example in terms of you know how inefficient beef production is. For chicken, it's nine to one. So let's say I make like ten chicken sandwiches and we throw away eight of them so that we can have one of them. So that calorie in calorie out ratio for producing animal meat is really inefficient. So there are a lot of different ways that we can look at it, both in terms of, A, resources, what are the inputs into, uh, what's the input, and then what's the output on these two different forms of production. And then you can also look at, you know, what's really the true cost in both social and environmental terms of cultivated meat. And, you know, into the future, I think these mean a lot of different things, not just resource efficiency, but also, you know, what does this mean in terms of what does this look like in the future and then how... How can we produce meat and you know, where are we going to be able to get meat or additional sources of protein? I you know one of the things that I think is super fun about the cultivated meat industry is that it's part of the Artemis project at NASA. Which, you know, basically NASA was like, if we're gonna take people to live on the moon and other planets, then we can't take cows and we can't take other animals. We have to find a way to produce food and produce protein without actually like taking them there with us. So what's your option? Cellular agriculture. There's a lot of, you know, really interesting things happening around the cultivated meat space, but absolutely 100% more efficient just in terms of production, but, you know, also much more efficient when you look at all of the negative externalities and the true cost of animal agriculture versus, versus cellular agriculture.
1: Wow. This is so fascinating, Taryn. You have such a cool job. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) We're going to the moon. This is awesome. Um, That's my plan.
3: That's my plan.
1: Um. But so, you know, you've kind of talked about and Cynthia and I both had the opportunity to try some of the first meats cultured that you guys did. And I'm telling you, gosh, it really tasted like a chicken nugget and tasted like sausage. I mean, it was you wouldn't know the difference if you didn't know, right? So it's fascinating to me. What what kind of products do you see people? Use? You mentioned milk is, is already mm-hmm. using this. What other products do you see in the future using this food wise?
3: Yeah, we see so so many cool products. So I mean, we have a a lots of milk products are coming out on the cultivated meat market, which is a really interesting production process. You know, we again at the early stages we see a lot of like chicken nuggets and. And these kind of like processed foods, you even see some companies doing some really interesting things like saying, Hey, we made this product. It's not really comparable. It's muscle tissue, but it's not really comparable to a meat product that you know today. So we're going to call it something different. I think there is a company in Australia that are, that's calling them like morsels. Um, They have some like interesting names around trying to remind people that like, Hey, don't compare this to like, whatever it is that you're already eating at home today from that came from an animal, right? This is something very different. So you see a lot of these uh, products that are chicken nuggets and burgers and you know things that are like uh, like fish, like you see like fish balls and things that are like processed foods, like pre-packaged processed foods. But you do have a lot of people working on structured whole cuts of meat too. So sushi, lots of companies working on sushi, like these smaller cuts of muscle tissue. I think probably most- Famously, uh, one of the most well-known companies is a company called Wild Type out of San Francisco. And you also see a lot of companies working on whole cuts of things like beef and steak. And so there is technology out there to make whole cuts. I think the challenge today is really on how do we get to those whole cuts at scale, right? So not how do I produce one of these in an R&D center, but how do I produce tens of thousands of these a day in a production facility or a manufacturing facility. And I think we're still probably, you know, quite a ways out from from production of whole cuts at scale, but you know, it is already happening today and you're going to see, I mean, I think a lot of companies over the next few years that are ready to get their product to market and you'll see a variety of these new, interesting things that they're creating. So
2: it's like a, just a scaling, like do you see of the, I don't know. Interesting scientific hurdles or engineering hurdles that have to be overcome. The energy in problems—is it just like okay? How do we get the cell to do this? Like, what what are the what are the hurdles? There
3: are a lot. AI should just start there and say there are a lot. But you have a lot of extremely brilliant people working on each one of these problems. Um, You know, probably one of the most recent conversations that I've. Heard is that, you know, it's not necessarily cell lines at scale. You know, we're making scaffolds. We have the capacity to manufacture for the entire cultivated meat industry. We're really, I think, you know, one of the things that is really necessary for this industry is infrastructure. So this is a really new thing in terms of taking an industrial type process biomanufacturing process and then turning it into food right combining that with food infrastructure um so it's a pretty different kind of hybrid process that requires really big spaces lots of really complex machinery and at very large scales to even capture a tiny share of the entire conventional meat market so i think just getting to that mass scale is huge and i think a lot of companies are really struggling with figuring out okay How do we get not one, two, three, four, five, 20,000 liter bioreactors, but 250, 250, 250,000 liter bioreactors to be able to actually, you know, reach scale and that scale when we're talking about food, right? It's a lot that needs to be produced. So I think that that's probably one of the biggest challenges. And one of the CEOs of one of the cultivated meat companies, I was reading an article that said, you know, I would literally need Every piece of steel for us to reach like a certain percentage of the market, not even capture the entire market for uh, for cultivated fish. I would literally need every single piece of steel that exists in the continental United States. And I would need every single piece of steel to turn into a bioreactor oh, wow. so that we could produce enough fish to make to make a dent in, in this seafood market. And I certainly, that is not a direct quote. So (laughs) I mean, you guys get the, you guys get the gist, right? Like, you know, it's a lot, it's a lot of infrastructure.
1: I'm curious, do you envision someday, you know, like the Jetsons, we have a little machine and we put, we want a chicken breast and all of a sudden it produces out cultured meat of a chicken breast.
3: Yeah, there's actually a company in Japan that is doing just that. Yeah, they're um, working on making this like in-home incubator where you would get like your cells and your microcarriers and then you have your incubator and you can make your own cultivated meat at home, which to be honest, I think is a fantastic idea. And not only for like consumers who want to do science experiments at home and make cultivated meat at home think about what that means for areas that are for example in a natural disaster crisis or if there's a war or you know if there's drought or famine or whatever this could really change what Global hunger looks like, right? And I mean, it's it's things like that, and it's technologies like that that are all related to the cultivated meat industry that can actually really change the way that we produce protein and that we get protein to people because it can be done on a decentralized system. And you don't need to have Again, A, arable land, land that animals can be on. B, all of these other agricultural inputs that you would need just to feed that animal so that it can produce the protein. You can actually build a decentralized facility in an area so that you, and where you wouldn't traditionally be able to have animal agriculture mm-hmm. and actually produce protein that has the same nutritional content and quality for that specific population. So I think there's so much potential in this industry. Um, but yeah, you guys, you know, maybe in the next decade or so you'll be cultivating your own breakfast sausage who knows
2: yeah <laughs> oh okay 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 somebody said to me one time that they could even take cell lines from extinct animals like you could one day grow yourself a mammoth steak is that a thing
3: yeah yeah I actually recently—it is a thing. There is—I recently read something about it, and I can't. I'll try to find the link and I'll send it to you. But that—that has happened.
2: Yep. Oh wow. So Taryn, one other thing
1: I wanted to talk to you about, because this we're talking about food and you always see the FDA labels on everything food-wise, how does this relate with the FDA?
3: So there was a lot of, I think, uncertainty around what was happening on the regulatory side until November 22, when the FDA gave the green light to the first cultivated meat company called Upside out of California. And they came out and said, this is a food safe product. Now, that doesn't mean that it's they're allowing commercialization of that product. There are multiple steps that this company will have to take afterwards. But that was a huge signal to say, hey, look, we know that, you know, we understand the process. This is a food safe product. And we are inviting other cultivated meat companies to also submit their products because, you know, we, we understand this, we're ready to start regulating this product. And that was pretty recent. That was less than six months ago. And that was huge for the cultivated meat industry. For us, you know, we, since we use all food safe ingredients already, we don't necessarily have to have this grass. So grass uh, means generally recognized as safe by the FDA. Um, we don't necessarily have to have that submission or that recognition, but at the same time, what it does provide for our customers is a very easy process in terms of uh, including our microcarriers or scaffolds as a cell culture food ingredient in their process. So we've been working on this process for over a year now of doing the appropriate testing and labeling and all the other things that we need to do in our products to be able to get that grass uh, recognition, and we are. In that process right now, we're expecting to have the first grass recognized cell culture food ingredient in the industry over the next couple of months. So we'll certainly keep you up to date on that.
2: Is it uh, lab grown proteins and meat? Is it on the market anywhere else in the world? Is the United States the first to work towards this? So it is regulated for commercialization in
3: Singapore, and that's currently the only country globally where you can sell cultivated meat. So a lot of the a lot of the companies in the industry have their submissions in uh, with the Singaporean Food Authority to be able to commercialize in Singapore. But I think most of the industry is holding out for the US to regulate cultivated meat because this will be the largest market.
2: Oh, wow. So you can actually, if you were in Singapore, buy a, what, I don't know, chicken nugget, fishball? Yeah. Right now? Um, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's
3: on grocery store shelves right now, but I know that you can get it at restaurants. There is another restaurant in Israel where you can get cultivated meat, but I don't, it's not commercialized. So it's, I'm not really exactly sure what they're, process is um, for being able to go to the restaurant and try their their cultivated meat. We were on a webinar, I think a couple months ago, and there was someone from the FDA there, and they mentioned that there were 16 companies in the regulatory pipeline in the cultivated meat industry. So that's pretty exciting. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a lot in a really young industry.
2: Hmm.
3: All right. Come on, FDA.
1: I need my chicken nuggets.
3: I know, (laughs) right?
1: (laughs) Well, so how can people follow the production process and
3: what Matrix is doing? So you can go to our website. It's www.matrixfood.tech. We are on Instagram as MatrixFT, on LinkedIn, also as uh, on LinkedIn, we're as Matrix Food Technologies, and we're on Twitter as MatrixFT. And a couple of really great resources to learn more about the industry are the Good Food Institute. So they're a leading nonprofit in the space that has lots of information on the alternative protein industry, as well as New Harvest. So same thing, lots of really great papers and resources if you wanna stay up to date on what's happening in this industry.
1: Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and telling us all about the matrix of the matrix of the matrix food technologies.
3: (laughs) 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 Yes, you are welcome into the matrix whenever you would like.
0: (laughs) No, thank you too. It was fantastic chatting. Pretty cool stuff, huh? And it's just going to keep coming. Next episode, we're getting to talk to Dr. Jerry Carter, vampire bat scientist from The Ohio State University. That one was so incredible, it might end up having to be a two-parter. We're just going to have to see. Until then, subscribe. Check out OhioSci.com, check out our Just Born Instagram, and we will catch you later. Thanks for listening to
1: Ohio OhioSci. Connect with us on our website, OhioSci.com.